I invite you to be seated. And as you're seated, uh, I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, as we gather together, we pray that we might continue to be inspired by you, to hear a word from you, so that we might be your love and your presence in the world. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, we're today picking up on our sermon series that we took a pause on, which is uh, the old stories made new. And I was really thankful that last week we were able to have uh, someone with us this morning, or that morning, leading us in worship. My friend and colleague, Reverend Sarah Heath, was with us. And I know many of you uh, got a chance to connect to her and also really enjoyed her sermon that she brought. So if you missed it, it is definitely worth checking out on podcast or YouTube or Facebook. Uh, her sermon, Sarah's wonderful. And she brings a, a different sort of energy. In fact, uh, she was explaining her like narrative of this story that I had known pretty well, the 70 going out by Jesus and being sent out. Um, I learned something new. And I know that many of you learned something new. And that's kind of the beauty, right, of having someone different with us, that Sarah brings a different perspective, a unique perspective, and uh, she's very talented in her presentation, and it was just a joy to have her describe to us one of the ways in looking at the scriptures. And I say that because I think that one of the ways of looking at scripture is always a super important way to frame when we approach this thing that we call the Bible. I had uh, uh, someone gave me a statistic at one point that uh, pastors think abstractly about 80% of the time, and then you have other pastors that are like 20% of their like concrete thinkers. And most of the congregations think concretely about 80% of the time and are abstract like 20% of the time. And one of the, the points being is that sometimes we like get all theological and up in the clouds and then people are like, what do you need me to do, right? What do you need me to do? And so having some takeaways that we can take away from the scriptures is valuable. And uh, I hate to disappoint you, but I say it on a regular basis. So if you're one of those 80% that needs that concrete thing, I do not believe there is one way to read the Bible, okay? Can I just go out there and say that? There is not the way to read the Bible. In fact, there's a multiplicity of ways. I know for some of you, you might think, maybe like kind of stirring in your seat, being like, ah, just give me the answer. I know that I'll sit down in Bible studies and be like, what does this mean? And I often say, well, it means a lot of things, right? And for Sarah, she talked about the power of being sent out and talking about having this power and authority over snakes and scorpions and this like really abstract, bizarre text and saying how that God gives us that now. It wasn't when the disciples went out and then they did something great, that they just had the authority that God had given them. And then she used this long uh, story about being this being it, like we're it now and the kingdom of God is here and present. It was amazing. And it was a different take on similar texts. It was a different take on similar texts. And, and all of this is kind of a precursor to our conversation about the story of Moses. And I say that because sometimes when we teach stories of the Bible, we teach them somewhat in a way that's like, this is what it said. And maybe if we get there, this is what it means. And I know some of us don't mind kind of wiggling around interpretations. And we talked a few weeks ago about Genesis. And I said, you know, that my kind of, uh, you know, 
being upset with a professor that said Genesis was a myth narrative, right? And I didn't have anyone throwing stones at me after I said that. Um, so I think you're okay with this. But um, there is an entire community of Christians elsewhere that communicate that the Bible is what it says. And in fact, uh, I have uh, my daughter, Stella, she is in ballet, and she's in a ballet club that um, has Christian music that they dance to. And so they were uh, having the rainbow ribbons and things, right? And they were talking about that day, Noah's Ark. And so then Sarah, who was with me at the time, because she had just preached on Saturday, you know, or on Sunday, and she came with me to pick up uh, our little Stella, and we were watching her do her dance at the end. And what they do is they like put on a song at the end of the the session, and the kids kind of go super cute and crazy. Um, And I was just watching how cute my daughter was. And then all of a sudden I look over and Sarah's like looking at me cringing like this, like, Oh, and I started to listen to the lyrics of the song that they were dancing to. And it was talking about Noah's Ark, right? And it was, it's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. It's a fact. (laughs) And it was just like, what in the world? And so there are two pastors who were like sitting in there listening to a song about how like our children are, this is a fact. And Noah's Ark and the rainbow is about God being the only way. And we're like, I don't know that this is what we think it's about. And so all that to say, like there is a, a group of Christians in the world that really want to continue to say that the Bible is what it says and says what it is. 100% 100% of the time. And Noah's Ark is a great example of that, the description that, you know, this is factual. Although I'm sorry to disappoint you, though, the more I have studied and the more I've gone to like the rabbit trail of archaeological evidence and the Bible and all of that, the more I have realized that the Bible, if you're going at it to find evidence-based historical account of what has happened in history, the more you will be disappointed. I'm I'm just sorry. The more you go at it like it's a history book, the more disappointing you'll find the Bible. And I think, in fact, you're gonna miss what I would argue as the beauty of the Bible. Because to me, I remember taking a history of biblical interpretation my senior year of undergrad. And one of the things that the professor kind of drilled into us is that what makes the Bible beautiful is that throughout the millennia, people have been able to interpret it differently. That what makes the Bible beautiful throughout the millennia is that people have been able to interpret it differently. And I know if you're that 80% that wants concrete, you might start getting out your stones because you might be like, I just want it to mean something. But let's take, for example, the story that we have of here of Moses. I'm, I'm again, sorry if this is like your faith is on the line, but it's not very likely that the biblical character of Moses actually was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter and was the second in command of all of Egypt. It's not very likely. In fact, we don't have even full historical account of an entire group, like a mass population of Egypt leaving at one time and then making their way. We, We have accounts of Israel being in Egypt, and we have accounts of them leaving Egypt and going into the land, but it wasn't this like ginormous exodus of hundreds of thousands of people. Because our scripture reading this morning makes it seem like that. Because if you read just a few verses before, 
One of the reasons why you have Moses' mom hiding Moses and then eventually putting him in the basket to go down the river is because this Hebrew people in the book of Exodus start growing in number. Growing so much in number that the people of Egypt are probably like, what in the world is with these crazy people? Their weird practices, they don't even work on Sunday or on Saturdays. They're, they're lazy, you know, they eat weird food, you know, they, all of these things, and they keep having babies, right? And they're complaining to the Pharaoh. And then so eventually what the Pharaoh says is to all the Hebrew wives or midwives, okay, if there's a girl, fine. If it's a boy, kill it. And it's a a super harsh thing that we don't talk about in the story when we talk about it to our Sunday school classes, right? But Moses and the whole narrative of Moses was birthed out of kind of a reduction, trying to reduce a population class within Israel or within Egypt. And so that is where we find ourselves of the Hebrew people kind of multiplying and flourishing and then being suppressed. But here's one piece before I go any further, is that I think that sometimes when we read the Bible, remember not reading it for the facts, but reading it more as a narrative intentionally written especially when you look at Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, what's called the Pentateuch. It was written to be a unit. And so when you look at the Hebrew, in fact, you start to see some similarities. And so when the Hebrew people were being fruitful and multiplying, you can't help but think of God's promise to Abram and Sarai that they will be a people that are fruitful and multiply. And they go and become as numerous as the sand. And then also because they're becoming more numerous, it becomes a problem that then people are trying to stop God's people from multiplying, trying to go against the promise and providence that God has for this people. And then similarly, the text says that when we read, it goes, and this woman she had a son, and she saw it was a fine boy, right? That's what the language in English says. But the Hebrew actually says, she had a son, and she saw that it was good. Now think about that for a second. She had a son, and she saw that it was good. Does anyone know where that like paraphrase is coming from? She had a son, and she saw that it was good. God created the earth and saw that it was good. God created the sea and saw that it was good. They're hearkening back to the creation story here, intentionally writing this narrative beautifully with words that any ancient Hebrew or someone who knows the Old Testament in its original form would immediately go back to. Oh, This is the start of God making something new and something good. And then from that something good, the story then moves on and uses language not too unfamiliar from that of Noah and Noah's ark. That Moses, this creation of something new, was to be put in the ark and to be brought down the river to a newness for God's people that was about to begin. 
And again, a lot of the stories, though, are, are steeped in kind of this challenge, right? What do we do with the challenge of, I don't know, Pharaoh trying to take away all of the boys that are born? What do we do with the challenge of hearkening back to the flood, which is what we were going to talk about last week, but Sarah's sermon was so much better. But last week, we were going to talk about the flood and how every kid knows that. Clearly, my daughter was dancing to it and about how it was a fact but if you think about the facts of the Noah's flood or the ark and the flood, it's like God also killed like all of the earth, right? Like that's the flip side with it. And we don't talk about that in the narrative. We just talk about the rainbow, right? And we talk about the, the dove and, and all the animals that got to go in. And we have the cute little ark toys that we, we teach them. But one of the things that I find so valuable about that story in the end, is that I don't know, again, that the flood has lots of archaeological evidence that the entire world had a flood. We do think that there was probably a really big flood in the Mesopotamian area, so it probably was a really big flood, and it probably did a lot of devastating things. Did God send it? Mm, I don't know. Was there an ark? Maybe. But what's the point throughout it? And to me, the rainbow, like our rainbow windows, is one of the points. It's this promise that God makes that never again will God destroy the earth. That God's work in the world is not about destruction, but about bringing life. And similarly, in that work, it's about how God is always with us. And so here now, in this new story of Moses, this new creation narrative, we see the ark at work, with the new promise post-flood. We see the ark at work with the new promise post-flood. And that's one of compassion over against power and oppression. I can't tell you how many times I have people tell me, I can't read the Old Testament. I mean, I can't read the Old Testament. It's doom, it's gloom, it's got, you know, killing people here and, you know, doing these things there. And it's just like, it's really challenging. And I don't disagree that it has its challenges. But I do think when you kind of peel away some of the onions, you start to find stuff that you're, when you hadn't looked at it before, and when you stop looking at it like this historical account, you see things anew. Like for a minute, did you recognize as I read the scripture, maybe you didn't know it was about Moses until the very end, but the entire work of Moses which is pretty important for the Bible, right? It's the entire narrative kind of going forward and continuing the promise of God's people in the world. Well, that was initiated and moved forward by who? Some midwives and some women up against the Pharaoh and the power that he could wield. Pharaoh had told all the midwives, you need to do this to all boys that are born. And you know what they did? Refused. <laughs> the Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh continued and told them even more what they needed to do. And they needed to send all males that are born down the River Nile, which I don't know if you know about hippopotamuses, but they're not super friendly, right? And it's filled with them in the Nile. Not a safe place. It wasn't good for them. And then what does the mother of Moses do? But instead hides her baby. 
and then gets her group of women to support her and then sends the baby down probably very, very strategically at the exact moment when they knew that Pharaoh's daughter was going to go out to the water to bathe. And then I can just see, right? Mother puts him down, just praying and hoping. And then the, the friend or, you know, the relative starts like scoping it out, right? Like, where's he going and watching and is it going to work and just kind of like sneaking through the reeds and trying to make sure that their meticulously crafted plan to care for this baby, even amidst all the oppressive possibilities, made it to fruition. And then more than that, Moses's mom gets to be the nursing midwife for her own baby and grow him until he's able to move into the Pharaoh's house. And I know that many people say, oh, it's so hard to read the Old Testament, but here is a story of women amidst oppression, finding the path for all of God's people to move forward. And how do they do it? But through the care and compassion that a mom has for their child. That through their care and compassion to care for baby Moses, they made possible all the miracles, all of the things that comes later in the story. And the thing about it is that when you read the story with a little bit more like humanity, you start kind of losing the sense that God's up there at work like this master puppet player, kind of like moving things and making it happen. And you start to get the sense that God's like with us, inspiring us to work against the powers that be, to do what God wants us to do from the beginning, to love one another, to offer compassion, and to care. And what I love about this story is that as you follow that, you start to see the miraculous providence of God at work through extremely difficult situations. Through extremely difficult situations. Because I, I do not believe that God is up there kind of like working out all the pieces like it sometimes like seems like when you hear the stories. But I believe that the people of God have been willing, courageous, faithful throughout history. And it's as they do that, live out their lives of faith, the miraculous work of God enters into the world. And to me, that's a story of hope amidst lots of things that are painful and confusing. And it's also something that each of us can embody, right? To care and offer compassion as a mother would, their child might initiate the work of God in this world. And you can do that in simple ways. Some of you know that uh, my wife, Ashley, started a grad program in nursing. It's in super intense. And one of the ways that I experienced love and provision was just someone in the church randomly was like, I want to make you some chicken noodle soup. Actually, it was Cheryl Hazama. Point her out. She's like, I want to make your family soup. 
And so there she was. It was a busy day. We had soccer, had all these things. And then she like shows up in her car at soccer practice and is like, here's your dinner. And it was amazing, right? And it brought just a sense of relief because I didn't have to do dishes, I didn't have to cook. It was just like a moment of care and compassion, a gesture that someone can make. Each of, us, each of us has that opportunity day in and day out to embody God's love, to kind of live out the mission that God's been in of bringing life to those around us. And, you know, I don't think that Moses' mom and all the family that was trying to support him was trying to do something that would, you know, like eventually free all of God's people from the oppression of the Egyptian empire, right? They were just trying to do the next best thing to offer love to baby Moses, to continue to love to all the children that were born. So this week, how might you do the next best thing? Just love someone with care and compassion that a mother offers her children. Because that's how God, our mother, cares and loves for each and every one of us. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks that, like a mother hen, you care for us. Like the powerful moms of this story, they cared for Moses and eventually made a way for the freedom of all of your people against the oppressive regime of the Roman or the Egyptian Empire. Help us live out just a, a small way of being that love in the world, even just this week. And so we offer our love in those ways, in those actions to you. And then also our words, that we love you, Lord, and we lift our voice. So that together our small voices become one chorus of your grace at work in our lives. Amen.